Hello, on behalf of the Society of Gynecologic Oncology, Association of Community Cancer Centers, Drs. William Burke and myself, Premal Thacker, we are excited to share this year-long educational activity about optimizing outcomes in ovarian cancer using personalized medicine. Today is our first podcast entitled Conversations in the Clinic, Patient Perspectives on Genetic Testing. We will learn about the importance of genetic testing for every ovarian cancer patient from a genetic counselor and a physician, but most importantly, from a patient. We would like to thank Merck and AstraZeneca for providing the funding for this educational initiative. With their support, STO and the ACCC will be able to collaboratively create an educational pipeline of topics specific to the provision of personalized medicine in patients with gynecologic cancers. This suite of educational assets will leverage existing resources and programs recently facilitated by STO clinical experts for use in the creation of live webinars and media presentations that will be archived as enduring materials. And now I'd like to turn things over to Dr. Ashley Stuckey. Hi, I'm Ashley Stuckey, a gynecologic oncologist and breast surgeon with women and infants from Brown University, and I will serve as the moderator for this podcast. I am very pleased to be joined by our two speakers today. First, Dr. Todd Tillmans, a gynecologic oncologist at the West Cancer Clinic and Research Institute. Also joining our discussion today is Leah Center, a licensed genetic counselor at The Ohio State University. Dr. Tillmans and Leah, welcome, and thank you for joining our discussion today. Dr. Tillmans, can you please begin the discussion by introducing your patient, Pamela? Pamela is a 48-year-old female with advanced stage ovarian cancer that received neoadjuvant chemotherapy with three cycles of taxol and carboplatin. She then received an interval cytoreductive surgery to no residual disease and then completed three more cycles of taxol and carboplatin. At the end of this, she had a complete clinical response based upon CA-125 levels, CT scans, and physical exams. We did uh, initially discuss with her the genetic implications that may be present for her, and so we did get uh, some testing, both germline and somatic testing as well. And then we uh, also discussed her family history, and and maybe I can transition to Pamela here, and you can tell me a little bit about your family history as we discuss these issues. I initially had no idea. I've been healthy in my entire life. Had no idea I even had a family history of, of the BRCA2 gene. But once all of this, once my diagnosis came to the forefront, it, it served for me because I also have four sisters and a daughter. So it prompted all of them to go get tested, which thank goodness they all are in the clear. But it, it set us on a path to be vigilant. And when I found out I had the BRCA2 gene, then it traced back that my dad, who had prostate cancer, he had the gene, which I didn't know, and my aunt, who had pancreatic. Um, Leah, as a genetic counselor, when it comes to communicating with the patients, can you describe some of the perceived personal or family worries about testing and then receiving results? Sure. Um, Everybody really comes from a different point of view when it comes to thinking about genetic testing in their family. And oftentimes, it's the first time they've ever had to think about it. Um, So it's quite common to have some concerns. And one of the most common issues that comes up, maybe not surprisingly, is concern or worry for family members. Um, You know, much like Pamela mentioned her daughters and sisters sort of being at the forefront of her mind when she was thinking about genetic testing, 
Sometimes patients are worried whether they would want the information or not, how it can impact them, and sometimes they even feel a little guilty about the idea that maybe they could have passed something on like a BRCA mutation to their children. So of course we spend some time talking about this and um, going through these concerns with patients. Um, and there's some families are sometimes surprised to hear that these genes that we often associate with female cancers can also impact males too. And just as an example, men with BRCA gene mutations can have a higher likelihood of developing prostate cancer and male breast cancer, which sometimes they don't even realize can happen. Um, another common area for patients to be confused sometimes are by the different types of testing that we might be doing at the time of their diagnosis. So like Dr. Tillman's mentioned, Pamela had both tumor testing and blood testing. And the truth is that sometimes we have to do multiple tests um, for a given patient. So it's understandable that it can get tricky. Um, but just as an example, if a person is tested just for one or a couple of genes, maybe even it was many years ago, sometimes we need to do a bigger test because while BRCA1 and 2 are the most common causes of hereditary cancer, they aren't the only ones. So often we need to look at these genes in the tumor tissue itself. So um, when we're looking at the blood or saliva samples, those are the genes that we typically associate with the hereditary component. So the part um, of the cancer predisposition that can run in the families. But when we look at these genes in the tumor tissue, it really is just for helping with treatment decisions and has little impact um, on the relatives of the patient. So um, it gets pretty complicated um, and maybe even more complicated if a patient has done some of these at-home genetic tests that you've probably heard about where maybe they're looking at ancestry. Some of those tests also incorporate some health traits, but they're quite different from what we would order in a typical oncology office. So it's definitely a lot to process. And I just tell patients to get really comfortable asking questions um, early and often, because that's what we're here for. Pamela, I wondered when you talk to your family members about the possibility that they may have a BRCA2 mutation, how did they respond to you? What did they do or what did they say? My daughter had a really hard time. She didn't want to know because she's so young and she's like, if something, God forbid, was there, do I want to know? But I, I had to just stress to her that if I could go back three years and have known to uh, get checked for the BRCA2 gene. So I could possibly have, you know, caught it early and not had to go through such measures because it was later. So I think my family understood that waiting, and I said, because it can only grow and progress. And so they caught on to, no, catching any, if it, even if it is something, catching it earlier is the best case scenario. Now, you mentioned the BRCA2 gene mutation, which is what you have. Leah, I wondered if you wanted to comment on other types that would put patients at risk for ovarian cancer or even breast cancer, some other types of mutations that may be concerning for patients. Yeah, you know, BRCA2 has a partner, uh, BRCA1, and then there are other genes that work alongside the BRCA1 and 2 genes, which of course get the most press, but we often think about genes called PALB2 or BRIP1, BARD1. There are genes that cause another condition called Lynch syndrome, but they also increase risk for gynecologic cancers. 
usually um, more often uterine cancer, but sometimes ovarian cancer too. So we usually have to keep our eyes open um, and cast a pretty wide net when we're talking about genetic testing these days. Leah, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the testing process in terms of do most patients get the test through their GYN oncologist? Do they usually get it done through a genetic counselor? Um, and, and typically, what is the timing like for that? Sure. Um, probably if you were to ask any patient, their response is going to be a little bit different because everybody's process is a little unique. And some of it has to do at the system where you receive your care, what kind of providers they have available. Um, But sometimes we have to get creative too, because the bottom line is that we just wanna make sure that people have access to these services and testing. Typically a patient will have a discussion about testing either with a genetic counselor, sometimes it's their doctor or even a nurse who might specialize in genetics and they provide consent for genetic testing to move ahead. And sometimes this first conversation might be pretty short, but in many cases, you'll have a very detailed discussion about all of the possible outcomes of genetic testing ahead of time. Um, And in other situations, that more detailed discussion is reserved for once the results are actually back. So it's a little different depending on where you are. These days, we've actually gotten pretty comfortable with doing things via telehealth. Um, So sometimes the appointments actually happen on the telephone or via a video appointment. Whatever we can do to make things more convenient for the patient is usually a good thing. The testing itself, though, is pretty easy. It just typically involves a tube of blood or even a tube of saliva. So the patient actually just spits into a tube. It gets sent off to the laboratory. And most labs return results now in about two or three weeks, um, and they return those results to the provider to give those to the patient. Great. Thank you. That's, you know, a lot to certainly consider for patients in terms of how they undergo their testing. Leah, can you talk a little bit about uh, what barriers sometimes might exist or perceived um, issues might exist for patients when you're discussing uh, the option of testing for them? Sure. And I think, you know, once we get to the point of the discussion with the patient, some of the barriers have already been removed, which is a great thing. But the truth is, there still are some barriers when it comes to inequity of access. So not all patients um, are being introduced to the idea of genetic testing, or they don't have access to people close to them that can facilitate the testing for them. So that's one important thing that we need to keep in mind whenever we're talking about the care of ovarian cancer patients. But beyond the access issues, patients are often worried about cost of genetic testing. And it, it, I totally get it. And Years ago, the cost of testing used to be much higher than it is today, but the good news is that the testing is almost always covered by insurance, especially when patients have ovarian cancer because it's considered medically necessary. Um, It's also much less expensive, like I said, than it once was, and most of the testing laboratories have programs to help people who are uninsured or underinsured, so we never want costs to be a barrier for someone, Um, but we can figure that out. Um, But patients also often have questions about how or if genetic testing can impact their future insurability. So they're worried kind of about being labeled as high risk and not following them. But there's a law called the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act, um, which has been in place since 2008 when it was signed that makes it illegal for employers and health insurance companies to use your genetic test results against you in a bad way. 
But it's important to remember that while those protections exist, there are no protections in place for policies that provide life insurance, long-term care, or disability insurance. So we usually have a discussion about this before we actually do the genetic testing, and it's especially important to do that for the people who have not already had a cancer diagnosis because this particular risk pertains differently uh, to the people in the family who haven't had cancer and maybe haven't gotten these policies if they want them. So especially for family members, we have a discussion about that before testing. So it sounds like there's a a lot of different aspects that go into um, considering whether to test or not for patients and their families. Dr. Tillmans, can you speak a little bit to the implications of test results to patients? We heard a little bit about uh, the PARP inhibitors from Pamela, but maybe um, how you talk to the patients about this, as well as additional testing for um, family members? I think when we're discussing those implications, I think it's a godsend that they have the ability to get tested and to see our genetic counselors as partners. They're so wonderful. Um, But sometimes, you know, the patients experience some guilt about it. Maybe that that concern of passing on some genetic deficiencies, all the wonderful genes they passed along, and just a few that might be a little bit abnormal. But I I think what your question is mainly getting at is, is also the importance of cascade testing. Testing the people that came before you and then also after you, your children, maybe grandchildren, making sure that they have an awareness of the different types of genetic mutations that can cause some of the malignancies. You know, not just BRCA1 or BRCA2, but what Leah talked about before, the other different types. And sometimes an extended profile allows us to pick up some of those that we may not have even thought were present. And so we try to go over that a lot. Just like Pamela was saying, she was so grateful that she had an opportunity for treatment now for BRCA1 or BRCA2, and we're all aware that there are homologous recombinant deficiencies of other types that we are also able to treat based upon the germline and somatic testing that we always do in combination. So the germline testing is the blood or saliva testing, and then the uh, somatic mutations off of the tumor itself. And that will indeed pick up, you know, oftentimes about 5% more that you may not have seen that were in just the blood or the saliva testing is oftentimes what we see now. And, and so many of the patients, because of the homologous recombinant deficiencies and other opportunities, about 50% of the patients sometimes will be candidates for these newer PARP inhibitor opportunities. Um, great. Yeah, thanks. And, and like we had briefly discussed uh, before, it also um, brings up the issue of preventative surgeries for patients and potentially their families as well, um, if they do carry the mutation. Leah, how do you um, counsel patients about family members that they may not be in touch with? And, and how can they get in touch with family members and explain all this uh, if they're having trouble understanding it themselves? Yeah, it's a big ask sometimes, especially like Pamela said, sometimes, you know, they're in the midst of a new diagnosis themselves, and then we're asking them to explain the genetic test results to their family members. But, you know, we can help. So uh, patients, doctors, or genetic counselors can give them information that they can pass along to their family members, either by helping write letters, or sometimes we have websites they can go to or videos that they can watch, or even just phone numbers we can give them so that they can call us. The most important thing is that they just kind of start the conversation so that it doesn't get lost in the shuffle of everything else that's going on. Because 
you know, like you've heard from Pamela, it can really have an empowering effect for some of the family members and make them feel like they're doing something about what's going on. And we wouldn't want to lose that opportunity. Now, I'm sure you do sometimes also see patients that come to you that don't have any genetic mutations that have been identified. What do you do at this point? Yeah, you know, the truth is most people don't have hereditary mutations. Hereditary cancers are pretty rare. But the first thing we would do is review their original genetic testing result and make sure it was comprehensive enough. You know, we've mentioned a couple of times tonight that BRCA1 and 2 aren't the only genes that we pay attention to these days. So sometimes additional testing is warranted or maybe a deeper look at the genes that were already tested if certain mutations couldn't have been picked up. But beyond that, the family history still matters. And we would take a look at other people in the family who've maybe been diagnosed with cancer. Sometimes we need to recommend genetic testing for them too, but that can sometimes help us with regard to estimating risk, even without a genetic test result for family members and put in place a good screening routine for those relatives. Another question, I think, Pamela, after our discussion today, do you have any other different thoughts about genetic testing? Um, and would you have done anything differently? Yes, knowing what I know today, I definitely recommend getting the testing. Like I said, if I had known, we didn't have any warning. In my case, no, nobody ever presented with that until my dad had prostate, but he was almost in his 80s. And my aunt had pancreatic, but she was almost in her 80s. So they, we, it, it never went back to the, a gene. So now that we know that, had, I, I just keep replaying in my head, if, if I only knew, if we only had a forewarning of, to get checked, I just, I, I mean, I know I can't go back, but I am such an advocate for get checked. Even my friends and family, if they feel an ache or a pain, <laughs> don't take it for granted because that's what I did. I mean, before I knew I was sick, I passed out in Walmart. I'm literally laying in the floor in Walmart and my sister is like, well, something may be wrong. You might want to go get, and I'm like, oh, it's nothing. I'm, I was at the deli and it, it got a bit hot over there. So I'm sure I just overheated, just completely blew it off. Didn't give it a second thought. And then, so once I got diagnosed, I'm like, how do I was laying out in the floor in Walmart? <laughs> so I just, yeah, hindsight is 2020 completely. So it sounds like we certainly have a lot more education that we can provide to the community about uh, genetic counseling and, and yes. options for testing, certainly. Yes. So I'd really like to thank everybody today, um, Pamela, for sharing your story and our experts, Leah and Dr. Tillmans, um, for your um, expert opinions today. Um, thank you all for listening to this podcast, and I hope you enjoyed our discussion.